How many of you have ever been to a wedding rehearsal? Raise your hand. You've been to a wedding rehearsal. Okay, a whole lot of people have been to wedding rehearsals. Let me share with you a great moment from our uh, wedding, Jana and I's rehearsal. Um, our friends, the incredibly talented Piote sisters, uh, were to sing Noel Paul Stuckey's wedding song. It has this line in it. It says, is it love that brings you life, right? But during the rehearsal, Jenny, the middle sister, suddenly loudly belts out, is it love that brings you strife? We laughed until we cried and then threatened her with death if she did that during the wedding, uh, which she did not. I bring that up because the Apostle Paul sings a little of each line in our text today. When he answers a Corinthian question about sex and marriage, he says, it's love that brings you life and love that brings you strife. Take a look. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians is right after Romans in your New Testament, just before, amazingly, 2 Corinthians. And, uh, and let's read verses 1 through 7. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. But because, of sexual, immorality, because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another sexually, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say the following as a concession, not a command. I wish that all people were just like me, but each has his own gift from God, one person in this way and another in that way. It's, it's obvious this is a direct answer to a question. Uh, as we label in your notes, you got a bulletin when you came in. Look inside there, there are notes there. As we put it in your notes, Paul answers a question about sex in marriage. That's what this section is all about, though we only have Paul's answers. We don't have the original questions, which is proof that teachers should not require students to write out the question along with their answer. God doesn't require that. You shouldn't either. Sorry, that drove me crazy in school. Anyway, um, speaking of students, this, is, this text gets really detailed about sex. Um, unless you parents want to answer a bunch of questions over lunch, you may want to take elementary kids to the Sunday school building and then hustle back here so you don't miss the good stuff. Um, to, while you're leaving, let's get the context. To, to get the context, let's look at Paul's interactions. He has a bunch of interactions and correspondence with the Corinthian church. 51 AD, it all starts when Paul first comes to Corinth. Stays what is for him a very long time. He stays there 18 months. And then 52 AD, Paul sails with Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, Priscilla was her name. Priscilla was her nickname. It's so funny. They did it backwards from us. When we make nicknames, we shorten people's names. In Rome, they added on to the name. So Aquila and Priscilla uh, sail across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus uh, to start work there. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla stay in Ephesus to disciple a guy named Apollos. He's this incredibly talented, brilliant, apparently, teacher uh, from North Africa, but he's got a lot of rough edges. So they stay to kind of help him get into shape. Paul goes to Jerusalem from there. 53 AD, Apollos, that guy from North Africa, he is sent back across the Aegean to become the head minister in Corinth. Uh, Paul goes back to Ephesus, stays the longest he ever stays anywhere in his life, stays 30 months in Ephesus. From there, Paul writes a letter that the Corinthians misunderstand. Chloe, who's a member of the church in Corinth, she sends word to Paul in Ephesus about these divisions in the church. And then later, uh, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus bring Paul very specific questions about these issues dividing the church. So, so all that together, the misunderstood letter, Chloe's word, Stephanus' delegation, about 54 to 55 AD, Paul writes 1 Corinthians as a response to all that the letter that you and I are studying. So in the first two-thirds of 1 Corinthians, we've got two big themes, 
Two big things. First, Paul deals with Chloe's report about the divisions. And then here in chapter seven, he moves on to the second big idea, which are the questions proposed by the Corinthians through Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus. It's a little bit like a Sunday school teacher that my dad knows. Um, this guy, fascinating Sunday school teacher, what he does is he teaches the first half of his class. The second half of every class, he answers questions that are texted to him by the students. That's Paul, chapter seven, he's answering the Corinthian text. Now, we're gonna work our way up backwards through this paragraph because then we can begin with the conclusion. Look at verse seven. In verse seven, Paul declares his conclusion. It's probably best to be single. Paul was single. He lived, as all Christians should, understanding that Jesus could return at any time. For Paul, that meant he didn't take some wife with him on all of his wild whirlwind travels and persecutions and church plantings all around the Mediterranean. Do you like that? Isn't that the cool? I love that chart. That's just so cool. I don't know who did it, but he's a genius. Now, Paul may have been married at some point. We don't know for sure. By the way, um, some scholars, and I'm not trying to pick on my wonderful brethren here, but, but some scholars will claim that Paul must have been married because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. That, that's not fair. To, to say that, you have to take a medieval Jewish rule and you have to read it back into time. That kind of anachronism is really bad scholarship. So we don't know. That was not a requirement in the first century. We don't know if Paul was married or not. If he was, his wife must have passed away or she divorced him when he became a Christian and began his life of almost constant travels. It seems most likely that Paul was, like Jesus, never married. And Paul thinks this is a great state. He is not denigrating marriage here. That wouldn't fit with the rest of Scripture. He is saying that he is wholeheartedly focused on serving Christ, and his singlehood allows for that in a special way. But God gives each his gift. This is so cool. Look, what we translate gift in verse 7 is a really special word in the Greek, charisma, uh, what we would say charisma. It, it means a gift, but... It's an especially gracious gift. The, the root word is charis, uh, charis, what, what, we, what we translate grace. So this is, this is a particularly wonderful, gracious gift. Thus, singlehood is a wonderful present from God. So is marriage. And neither gets the honor that it deserves among humans because people totally miss Paul's point. It's been true throughout history. It's certainly true in our day. For example, think of our modern media. Our modern media assumes that the default best setting is singlehood, but according to our common presentation of singlehood, it's a wholeness, supposedly, that is found in self-focus. Self is the center of everything, and fulfilling one's material desires is all that matters. That is sick. That is just absolutely sick. It is the opposite of God's gift of Christian singlehood where real wholeness is found in single-mindedly serving our Savior Jesus. Or, or think about marriage today. Marriage is displayed as a miserable estate where nothing of value happens that is absurd. And it is so far from the charisma that God gives in the beauty of Christian marriage. Fabulous statement on this charisma of singlehood or marriage comes from the late great Elizabeth Elliot. Look at what wonderful Elizabeth says. Uh, she wrote, what we are is a gift. And like other gifts, it's chosen by the giver alone. The giver chooses the gift. Newsflash, teenagers. You don't choose your own Christmas presents. Take a deep breath. Okay, and it's chosen by the giver alone. Having now spent more than 41 years single, by the way, at the time she wrote this, she had already had to bury two husbands. Um, having now spent more than 41 years single, I have learned that it is indeed a gift, not one I would choose, not one many women would choose, but we do not choose gifts, remember? We're given them by a divine giver who knows the end from the beginning, and he wants above all else to give him the gift of what, everybody? 
himself. He wants to give us himself. Paul's conclusion is it's probably best to be single in order to serve Jesus. But the Lord gives each charisma, and that includes both marriage and singlehood. And then we work our way up to the first thought in the section. Sexual immorality is common. It is so common, and it is misunderstood. Sexual immorality is so common, but there's even more going on in Corinth. Um, it appears, this is really weird. Follow me here. This is going to seem strange, but, but it's true. Some Corinthians had adopted a proto-Gnostic idea regarding sex, get this, that sex was wrong even inside monogamous marriage. Even if marital sex was necessary, they considered it somehow dirty and immoral because of the Gnostic idea that, that the body is completely dirty. That totally misunderstands both sexual immorality and, and the beauty of sex as God intended it. Sex is supposed to be robust and joyful in marriage. We're not, we're not studying Proverbs and Song of Solomon here today, but you can read them, and I recommend you read them. You're gonna read very graphic, very joyful, wonderful texts all about the greatness of sex in marriage, none of which is the least immoral, not in the least. Look, just look at this. Here's how God responds to a, to a married couple who are his people that are having sex. Look what God says. Eat, friends. Drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers. In fact, Song of Solomon uses an image that Paul's going to fully develop in, in his book of Ephesians. And that is that the married couple is in a triune relationship with Yahweh himself. God's the one that joins them together, and then he joins them with him. It's kind of a, a, a trinity with the triunity. Thus, in a sense, marital sex is a form of communion. Far from immoral, it is holy. It's holy. This is one of the things that most interests me about our forebears in Christ. Late medieval, early Reformation Christian marriages uh, developed a fascinating couple of practices. Uh, I, doubt, I doubt most of us have heard this. It's not usually in textbooks, but it's true. Our forebears were so determined that this Gnostic, anti-sex nonsense be eradicated from their churches. They were so dedicated to sex being enjoyed as a, as a oneness-making gift from God that they developed some fascinating practices. Here's what they did. Uh, a couple would become betrothed, what we call an engagement, okay? And there would be a ceremony. They'd have a ceremony at church for betrothal, and the couple would consummate that night. They would have sex that night right after the ceremony. Then they would have a big wedding either the next day or sometime usually within a week. This is the part that's gonna freak you out. At the consummation, somebody was selected, some old wise person in the church was selected to be the observer who stayed in the chamber and made sure that the couple indeed became one physically because that was so important to them. I know that is so creepy to us, right? <laughs> but the idea's great. The idea is great that God glories in marital sexual union, that, that it is really important to see wedded sex as a moral good, so important. Eric Metaxas says this, his wonderful new book, Martin Luther, which I highly recommend. Metaxas says, from our vantage point, this scenario cubes whatever ideas we have concerning awkwardness. <laughs> but, but for those in Luther's day who were not prudes about the facts of life, who considered the marriage bed not less than holy, who saw in the physical union of man and woman a living picture of the union between the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church. It was a real place and a real time where heaven bowed down to kiss the earth. All God's people said, amen. Within marriage, sex is to be the holy norm because 
Look at your text. The two are one. They are not individually owned. That's why apostereo is used. Um, what we render deprive in verse five is a really strong term. It was used of false teachers in the Bible. Outside the Bible, apostereo is used of companies that do bait and switch techniques where they promise one thing and then, and then draw it away. Defraud is really the pith of the idea. This is very strong language, especially shocking because humans, you know this, right? We tend to think of sex as a personal thing. It is something for self. Using apostereo makes it clear sex is not something we're contracted to, 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 to receive. It's something we're contracted to give. It is our responsibility to give. I'm not my own. I belong to the Lord and to Jana. She and the Lord have authority over this body. If I don't respond to their biblical directives, I am defrauding them. Apostereo. One time I quoted Elizabeth Elliot, the same lady I, I quoted from a few minutes ago here. I read from a book of hers, and a young man came up to me, and he commented, she's just another old-school New England prude. In response, it was so cool that he said that when I happened to have this particular book. I read to him a letter in this book I had of Elizabeth. It's a letter she wrote to her daughter, Valerie, when Valerie was newly married. Okay, look at, look at Elizabeth's letter to Val. Sex is part of God's will for husbands and wives. It's one way they glorify him. Think of it. They're not to deny one another. Love your husband. Love his body. Love to be close. The essence of sexual enjoyment is self-giving. Give yourself wholly, joyfully, hilariously. Have we ever talked about the hilarity of sex? No one had prepared me for how rollicking it can be at times. She goes on. Neither husband or wife should withhold this pleasure from the other <clears throat> except by mutual agreement for a limited time. His body belongs now to you, yours to him. You will find that it is impossible. This is brilliant. Listen. You'll find it's impossible to draw the line between giving pleasure and receiving pleasure. If you put the giving first, the receiving is inevitable, close quote. As Elliot mentioned, and we say it on the right side of your notes there, is one reason to abstain. One reason to abstain, and that's prayer. Of course, there are times of exhaustion or illness when, when it is a blessing to, to give by valuing your partner's needs over your own, sure. But beyond these exceptions, there are times when drawing close to God in prayer takes precedence over marital sex. You're gonna have times where you need, to spend that, you need to spend that energy confessing sin. You need to spend time giving thanks. You need, to, you need to think through problems with God. So you make that your focus. This is, by the way, this is an especially important part of, of drawing more deeply together. Look, 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 look at the little chart here. As I draw closer to the triune God and my spouse does the same, what inevitably happens to our relationship with each other? We inevitably draw closer to each other as well. It, it, it can't help but happen. If we each draw closer to God, we draw closer to each other. Prayer's not just for you. It is a, a cultivation of your triunity in marriage. A friend of mine put it this way in a letter to me. <clears throat> said, Wayne, marriages need constant cultivation, and prayer is a major part of cultivating health. If all you do is have sex three times a week, then you're in trouble. A couple needs to pray, to focus on the Father, together and separately. Another friend commented this said, of course, prayer draws a couple together. Some of our richest sex nights came and we decided to set everything aside for prayer. We didn't skip the prayer. The sex just inevitably seemed to follow, close quote. And by the way, that is very, very true. So if you're engaged or dating, be careful when you pray together, seriously. Um, Song of Solomon shows a really brilliant way to think about all this. Um, the, the problems, in Song of Solomon, the problems that plague every marriage are called foxes. 
Um, now, this may never have occurred in real life agriculture, but what Solomon does is really genius. He pictures all the problems that can bother marriages as little kits, little foxes with sharp teeth that can chew up the vines. Uh, the vineyard is a, a metaphor for a, for a healthy marriage. And so the woman, the woman cries out, Song of Solomon, chapter two, verse 15. Uh, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, for our vineyards are in bloom. Catch those problems. Uh, Dennis and Barbara Rainey wrote a great book about eliminating these foxes in marriage. It's called Rekindling the Romance, and it describes how we use prayer. We, we use all communication with God and with our spouse to eliminate the foxes. And they list, they list foxes like these, and I think this is actually a pretty good list. The most common foxes that destroy marriages are sexual counterfeit fantasies, very dangerous, passivity or indifference. In, in my practice, I've seen that as the number one killer of marital relationship, uh, just passivity, indifference toward one another, a sexual greed, which is just self-focus, and then conflict, romantic uh, conflict. Now, it is each, listen, it is each spouse's responsibility to catch these foxes. But I agree with the Rainies. In their book, they write that it works best when the husband leads in this. Guys, you should be the one calling for prayer. It's not that your wife can't, but you should call for prayer. Men should be talking to their wife about the never-ending fight against the destructive foxes. That's probably why it's the woman who cries out for help in Songs chapter two. It's why I tell my wife every time I am sexually tempted, I make sure we have a, we talk a lot, okay? We have a lot of conversations because it's a regular part of life and I make sure she knows that way she can help me and we can work together to catch that horrible fox that could kill us. Men should be leading in this. In fact, men should be leading in every way of kindling romance, not letting any female off the hook. But gentlemen, I want you to listen to Bob Richardson, one of our elders. He recorded a little piece for you. Take a look and listen. I'm gonna share with you a portion of uh, Dennis Rainey's book, my good friend Dennis Rainey, who's... Uh, Rekindling the Romance, Love Like a Man. What does it take to become a romantic man of your wife's dreams? As you're discovering the pages ahead, the key to learning to be fluent in her romantic love language. A romantic man engages his wife in living and growing relationship without losing sight that physical intimacy is an important part of that relationship in marriage. A romantic man commits to learning non-sexual ways to love his wife while nurturing in her the freedom to be sexually responsive. A romantic man can kiss, hug, touch, and cuddle without sexual agenda while helping his wife to embrace the joy of sex at the right time. A romantic man does not pressure his wife into having sex, nor does he retreat from the pursuit of sexual oneness. A romantic man connects to his wife's world, supports, listens, shares his heart with no sexual strings attached while being confidently aware that sexual intimacy is a vital to the survival of his marriage. A romantic man does all of these things even when his spouse is sexually unresponsive, knowing that he is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church. As a man, you can learn to speak your wife's language of romantic love and still be fully a man, a sexual man with sexual desires that were blessed by God and created for his purposes. Remember, there is no shame, no condemnation, and no apology for being a man. Back to you, Wayne. Thank you, Bob. <clears throat> All right, read the next section. Go to verse eight. 
I say to the unmarried and to widows, it's good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, then they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with desire. I command the married, not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. A husband is not to leave his wife. As we headline in your notes, uh, Paul continues Jesus' high view of marriage. The gifts should be revered. Three people groups, three people groups in view here. Group number one are the unmarried and widows. It's good for them to remain like Paul, like Jesus. Uh, kalos is used here. Beautiful word, favorite word of Paul's. Uh, we translate it good or, or winsome. It, it means something positive, something good for the situation. Now, however, kalos doesn't imply that there can't be something else that's just as good or something else better. It just means this is good. So if you can, enjoy serving Jesus without a marriage. If not, cool, get wed. Number two are the married folks. Divorce is wrong. It's wrong, except in very narrow circumstances. Look, look down at the end of the chapter. Go down to the end of the chapter, verse 39. Go there. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. But she's happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion, and I I think I also have the Spirit of God. Paul's very funny here. Uh, bound, he said. Bound. That, that's a wonderful term. Um, it led to, a, to a, an early Reformation practice. It's not done very often. Have any of you ever seen this? In some, in some traditions, they still at weddings will have the husband and the wife each hold hands, and then the, the pastor will take uh, bands and he will band them around. It's, it's called, it's called the, the tying of the bands. And he will literally tie the knot, that's where we get that phrase from, as he binds them. Has anybody ever seen that? It's, it's really beautiful, not very often these days, that tying the knot, they are bound together. And, and that is a way to try and show Jesus' great point in Matthew 19. Remember what Jesus did? Matthew 19, some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, quoting here from Moses, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give her divorce papers and send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning, by the way. Quick interruption here. This is free. Um, <clears throat> that's a wonderful, one of, the, one of the early places where the Bible makes it clear that Jesus has fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant. It wasn't that way from the beginning. The Mosaic Covenant is a bilateral temporary covenant. Always was intended to be. The principles still apply, but we are not under the Mosaic Law. It, that was for then. This is for now. It wasn't that way from the beginning. Back to Jesus. Thank you. Now back to Jesus. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Roman men and women had the right of no-fault divorce. Did you know that? Every Roman man or woman could divorce with no fault. By the way, a divorced woman received back her dowry, and she received half of all property that had been acquired or money that had been made during the course of the marriage. And by the way, when Paul wrote this, divorce was rampant in the Roman Empire. We have so many speeches from the Senate where they're lamenting all the divorce and how it's tearing up the culture, and what can they do about it while they were all divorcing? Um, and to that culture... Jesus and Paul very boldly say, let's be honest. It is hard-heartedness that is behind almost all divorcing. It is. And our modern divorce is usually for the same reason. It's because somebody has a hard heart toward God. Yes, there are exceptions. Jesus and Paul mentions them. We're going to get to those in a moment. But the truth that we hate to hear 
is that most divorce is simply a sign of a hard spirit towards God. A wiser, softer heart reveres the gift, reveres the gift of marriage. The gifts should be revered among the unmarried and widow, that's the first group, second among the married. Now, read 12 through 16 to meet the third group. These are unequally yoked believers. Uh, verse 12. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with him, he must not leave her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he's willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. For the unbelieving husband is set apart for God by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is set apart for God by the husband. Otherwise, your children will be corrupt, but now they're set apart for God. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. For you, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Or you, husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? The gifts should be revered. There's no definitive command on this in other texts, so Paul grants an opinion. By the way, don't be fooled by that. It's still scripture, right? It's still scripture, but God's just letting us in on the background. Oh, speaking of background, William Barclay, William Barclay, the great Scott, he gives some really cool cultural background to this situation. L listen to this. He says, one of the great heathen complaints against Christianity was that Christianity did break up families and was a disruptive influence in society. Tampering with domestic relationships was, in fact, one of the first charges brought against the Christians. And it must be confessed that sometimes the Christians did, in fact, take a very high stand, which is his Scottish way of saying they took a snotty, uh, bad view. Uh, of, of what parents are you born? The judge asked Lucian of Antioch. I'm a Christian, Lucian answered, and a Christian's only relatives are the saints. Oh, so snotty. Such disdain for the family is not biblical, but occasionally we see it, especially among new Christians. They exhibit this irritating attitude. The gift of family should be revered, even when the spouse is not yet a Christian. I very well remember Mitzi's conversion. Mitzi started listening to, uh, to our Bible teaching on the radio, and then one Sunday she came here to church. She trusted Jesus. She very quickly became involved in the life of the church. After Mitzi had been a Christian about four months, her husband, John, called and asked me for an appointment. And over tea in my office, John looked at me and he declared, and I quote, this is not what I signed up for. He went on. He said, my wife won't go to alcohol parties with me anymore. She spends hours every week with other people at church stuff. And get this, he said. This is ridiculous. She wants to give some of our money to God. This is wrong, he said. And I totally understood. Poor guy, I so sympathized with him. So we set a later meeting for both of them together with me. And there we read these passages, one you've been reading, along with First Peter. And we talked about how things should go. The biblical instruction is very clear. There is to be continued respect for the bands. There is to be no separation initiated by the Christian. However, if the non-Christian wants to depart, then God allows for that divorce with no condemnation. So here's how it all fleshes out. Uh, Mark Bailey, who's now the president of DTS, he and I one time were speaking together at a conference. We had a great question from the floor, and so we cobbled together a chart to answer that question. I liked it so much, I've kept it, and I still use this chart to this day. So here it is. Here's everything the Bible has to say about this subject. You've got these, these situations of people. You have a Christian single. That person is to rejoice in the gift, the charisma of a single-minded life with Jesus, in Jesus. But that person is free to enjoy biblical marriage. By the way, biblical marriage means marrying another Christian, not being unequally yoked. That's why Paul says, in the Lord. That's what he means in your text. Second, you've got Christian spouse and Christian spouse who are tied the knot together, and they are together in and with God as a triunity until death do them part. 
You sometimes will have a Christian spouse who commits adultery. Matthew 19 that we read from Jesus. That person can be divorced. And by the way, by the way, Christian divorce, I mean, acceptable biblical divorce always allows for acceptable remarriage. It's a biblical fact. It is. Now, only when it's a biblical reason for divorce. But when that happens, there can be another marriage. You have sometimes a Christian spouse, what we just talked about, a Christian spouse with a non-Christian spouse. There can be a divorce there if the non-Christian so desires. Again, that allows for remarriage. And then finally, you have people who are widowed, and they are free to enjoy their singlehood in Jesus or free to enjoy biblical marriage that is in the Lord. Got it? Every one of these options reveres the gift of God. Now, Paul has two more ideas. Barclay, by the way, calls these lovely lovely thoughts. Um, First, A Christian sanctifies a household. Do you you see set aside in your text? That means, that's hagios in the Greek, means made holy for God's use. Listen carefully. You cannot justify your kids or your spouse. You cannot make them right before God. That's between them and the Lord. But your presence by nature makes your household more sanctified, no matter if you're the only believer there. Again, Dr. Barclay is brilliant on this. Look, Look what he says. There's an infection about Christianity which involves all those who come in contact with it. In a marriage partnership between a believer and an unbeliever, it's not the believer who's newly brought into contact with the realm of sin. It's the unbeliever who's brought into contact with the realm of grace. All God's people said, a Christian sanctifies the household. Second lovely thought is a believer may be used to lead his or her spouse to faith in Jesus. First Peter speaks to this as well, and I have seen it in action so many times. Remember Mitzi? I told you about her husband, how he was so mad at her becoming a Christian. One year later, he sat right where you're sitting, and he trusted Jesus Christ as well. I remember my friend Taskell. She came to faith in Christ, and for eight years, she loved Lloyd, crusty, grumpy old Lloyd. She loved her husband, never badgered him, never pushed him, just did what First Peter says, and just prayed for him and loved him fully. Never asked him to go to church, just went herself. One Sunday, eight years after she became a Christian, Tasco walked into church, and there was Lloyd. He was sitting there. He had beaten her to church. He decided to come, and that Sunday, he trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior through the influence of his wife. Beautiful stuff. All God's people said? Now, let's read 17 through 24. 17 through 24. However, each one must live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. That's hilarious. Paul's very funny. I told you, he's being very funny here. Um, He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter, and uncircumcision doesn't matter. Keeping God's commands does. Each person should remain in the life situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? It should not be a concern to you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called as free free man is the Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brother, each person should remain with God in whatever situation he was called. We must bloom where planted. Now, look at this. Paul uses here a really popular Latin construct called an inclusio. Uh, It's your fancy Latin word for the day, men and women. On the count of three, you get to say inclusio. One, two, three. 
inclusio. Here's what an inclusio does. It'll be in the middle of a longer section and there'll be bookends. There'll be one thing that says something and then an almost exact repetition at the end. And what is, here's the purpose of an inclusio. Romans use this a lot to, to say something that they wanted to highlight in particular. They wanted, to, they wanted to stop the flow of thought for a minute and they wanted to highlight one thing. And the one big thing he's highlighting here is bloom where you're planted. Be a Christian where God has placed you. We're not concerned with race. We're not concerned with circumstance. We're concerned with our connection to our Savior God. Now, the slavery part trips people up here because, because we put on our modern glasses and we view this as modern racial slavery. That's not at all what's being addressed here. Roman slavery always allowed slaves to earn their freedom. Uh, that, uh, freedom uh, slavery was not passed on through race. It wasn't about color. And our, our text is playing off of one way that slaves became free in Rome. Here's what they would do. This is one way slaves became free. A slave would take part of his pay. Yes, they were paid. It was very little. But a slave would take part of his pay, and he would go deposit it in some temple. Okay, that was the, the banks of the time. There would be some pagan temple. He'd put his money in that temple, and, and it would be protected there. That was the safest place to have money. And then any time that slave did odd jobs and got more pay, he would go back and put it in the temple until finally the day came that he had enough money built up that the price could be paid for his freedom. So the slave would then go get his master. It was a law. The master had to come with him, and he went with him to the temple. The priest then would take the money that was deposited, minus a nice fee, and, and he, would, he would take that, and he would pay the price for that slave. And then the priest would say this. This is so important. Look, look at your text, and this will make sense. The priest would say, this person is no longer a slave to men. This person is now a slave to this God. He is set aside for this, whoever the God of the temple was, right? That's how they would do it. So, so Jesus, look at our text. Jesus bought us with the most precious thing possible. He bought us with his blood. We didn't even pay our own price. He paid it for us. Thus, we are to be free of all human ownership. Modern slavery is indeed evil. In improving one's lot like a Roman freedman is fine. But the big idea, the big idea is to be Jesus' freedman. It's to be God's slave. And that is far different from the I deserve arguments that you and I give when we're going to break marriage bonds. I hear those all the time. I deserve, I deserve to be out on the road. I deserve to jettison ties. I deserve to not have to go through this hell. Paul's argument in context is a statement that you have a prior, permanent, wonderful slavery. And it is a slavery to Christ. And he commands us as his free people to bloom where we are planted. All God's people said. Now. In the last part of this section, Paul grants an opinion on a difficult issue. Look at verse 25. Verse 25. About virgins, and I'll come back to that. That doesn't mean what you think it does in this context. I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, he's going he's gonna to continue the idea, but he's going to leave that thought and talk about some other stuff. So go down to where he picks it up again in verse 36. Okay, verse 36. But if any man thinks he's acting improperly toward his virgin if she's past marriageable age, and so it must be, he can do what he wants. He's not sinning. They can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who's under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and has decided in his heart to keep his own virgin, will do well. So then the one who marries his virgin does well, but he who does not marry will do better. The situation appears to be an early example of a problem that not too long after this was addressed by some church councils. Um, this is going to be really weird to you, but here's what they did. A Christian man and woman would sometimes cohabit in order to save money. But they apparently developed an odd vow that they would not have sex even though they were sharing one bed. I know, that seems downright dangerous and silly. 
But this was especially popular in the places in the East, especially where Gnosticism flourished. Because Gnosticism had this idea that the human body is inherently all totally, completely evil, which is biblically ridiculous, but that infiltrated the churches, causing people to see sex as somehow unspiritual. So they considered that living together without consummation, without marriage, was somehow noble. Now, in those weird relationships, the woman was often called the man's virgin. Okay, so that's what he means when he says virgin. It's this woman who's living with a man, and, and they're not having sex together. They're not married. We don't practice, thank goodness, Gnostic strangers like having a virgin. But the principle here still applies to us. Paul says this. He says, self-discipline's great. But don't set up extra hurdles. Don't misunderstand what sex is. Don't think the body's horrible. When you do those things, you take glory away from God. One more time. Barclay is brilliant. Look, look at Barclay here. To us, the whole relationship of a man and his virgin seems dangerous and abnormal and even wrong, and so indeed it was, and in time the church was compelled to brand it as wrong. But given the situation, Paul's advice is full of wisdom. He says self-discipline and continence are excellent things if by such the Christian is using natural instincts and passions to the glory of God. He goes on. That's the fault of monks and hermits and nuns. They regard it as necessary to eliminate the natural feelings of mankind or to be truly religious. We must, this is brilliant, listen, we must remember Christianity was never meant to abolish ordinary normal life. It was meant to glorify it. Close quote. Now, the remainder of the passage contains Paul's biggest idea, biggest idea for the whole chapter, that the primacy of our service to Jesus supersedes all. Verse 26, pick it up there. Therefore, I consider this to be good because of the present distress. It is fine for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you've not sinned. If a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. Remember I told you he was going to say both parts? It is love that brings you life. It is love that brings you strife. I say this, brothers. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. I want you to be without concerns. An unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. Unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about things of the Lord. So she may be holy both in body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but because of what is proper, so you may be devoted to the Lord without destruction. Paul is expecting the immediate return of Jesus, something we know is still very real. It could happen today. Amen? The apostle also knows how anxieties accompany all of our life commitments. It is inevitable. Love brings life. It also brings strife. Ergo, he says, be focused on serving Jesus. This is a the theme of the whole book, all for one and one for all. Of course, focus on Jesus can happen in marriage. God used this same apostle to pen the, the beautiful treatise on marriage in the book of Ephesians. But in Ephesians, just as here, the point's the same. Marriage is a union with the Lord. Married or single, serving Jesus is our primary. It is the primacy of our service to Jesus that supersedes all. When we are focused on him as primary, then we can do the best job caring either for our singlehood or for our marriage, right? Christian writer Ann Voskamp recently addressed this, and it was just magnificent the way she addressed it. She wrote a letter to her sons and she said this. She posted it publicly, and I want to use it. Ann Voskamp, this is a letter to her sons. Can I tell you something, kids? Romance isn't measured by how viral your proposal goes. 
The internet age might try to sell you something different, but don't ever forget your goal is always to make your Christ focus contagious to God and just one person. Beautiful. She goes on. It's more than just imagining some romantic proposal. It's a man who imagines washing puked on sheets at 2.30 a.m., plunging out a full and plugged toilet for the third time this week, and then scraping out the crud in the bottom screen of the dishwasher every single night for the next 37 years without any cameras rolling or soundtrack playing. That's imagining true romance. The man who imagines slipping his arm around his wife's soft, thickening, middle-aged waistline and whispering that he couldn't love her more who imagines the manliness of standing bold and unashamed in the express checkout line with only maxi pads and tampons <laughs> because someone he loves is having an unexpected Saturday morning emergency. By the way, guys, listen. You, quick aside. You can buy other stuff too and kind of cover it up. Just a thought. <laughs> Sorry, back to Ann. Um, the real romantics imagine graying and sagging and wrinkling as the deepening of something sacred. Because get this, kids. How a man proposes isn't what makes him romantic. It's how a man purposes to lay down his life that makes him romantic. Get it. Life and romance, it's not about one-upmanship. It's about one-downmanship. It's about the heart-boring years of sacrifice and going lower and serving. Real love isn't about how well you perform romantic gestures. It's about how well you let Christ perform your life. Sure, go ahead, have fun. Make a ridiculously good memory at your proposal and we'll cheer loudly. Be a creative romantic, but never forget that what wows a woman and woos her is how you purpose to live your life. I'm praying, boys, be men. The kind of man whose romance isn't flashy because love is gritty. The kind of man whose romance isn't about cameras because it's about Christ. The kind of man whose romance doesn't have to go viral because it's going eternal. Close quote. Let's join her in that prayer. Pray with me. Father, I pray for all of my precious brethren who are single, that they will use that charisma, that beautiful gift of singlehood as a way to worship you with their all and thus find real wholeness. I pray for all my brothers and sisters who are married, that they will live their marriage as a true romance unto you. And by living unto you, they draw closer to each other. And Lord, I pray for anyone, anyone studying with me today, who is not able to enjoy this because they can't draw near to you. They're separated from you. Lord, I beg you to, to convert them right now. Friend, listen carefully. You are a sinner, period. It's a fact. And you are separated from the holy God, fact. But the amazing fact is that God loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, fully God, very man, he died on a cross to pay for your sin and mine, which we could never pay for. He paid our price in that temple in heaven as he died on the cross. And then you know what he did? He rose from the dead so that everyone who believes in him could follow him in everlasting life. Trust him right now. Trust Jesus, believe in him. Just talk to God who loves you and say, I, I believe in Jesus alone. I receive my Savior. If you just prayed to trust Christ, raise your hand. Act on it. I want to rejoice with you. Everybody else is praying. Just raise your hand. Super. Father, again, I pray for us that we will bloom where we are planted in the primacy of our incredible relationship with you. In Jesus' name.